Tired of ads barging into your favorite news podcasts? Good news. Ad-free listening is available on Amazon Music for all the music plus top podcasts included with your Prime membership. Stay up to date on everything newsworthy by downloading the Amazon Music app for free or go to amazon.com slash news ad free. That's amazon.com slash news ad free to catch up on the latest episodes without the ads. Australia's looking up because Skylab is falling. It's up, up, up for the price of eggs, ciggies and petrol. Mad Max roars into cinemas. As a yowie goes on the attack... Cops play with beer can bombs. And how to cure an ochre. All that and more is coming up. I'm Michael Adams. I'm Mick Luby. This is the Wayback Week. And this time we're taking you way back to the second week of July 1979. So 40 years ago this week, Mick, all Aussie eyes were on the sky and everyone was asking, where will it land? When will it land? Of course, I'm talking about Skylab. Ooh, Skylab was huge, and it wasn't just Aussie eyes, it was eyes all over the world, because pretty much everyone statistically realised that it could come down on them. It's true. That said, though, an American newspaper did say that out of all the countries in the world, Australia was the most obsessed with it because, quote, it must be a slow news day down there. So we must have been having a lot of slow news days because it was front page all this week. Yeah, but hang on, they can talk. They were buying helmets. There were Skylab helmets available. <laughs> and Skylab repellent. $3 with a money-back guarantee. And guess what? See, we weren't doing that. After it came down, no one tried to get their money back because it didn't hit anyone. Oh, damn. But it did hit us. It hit it us. It did hit us. When they said it was going to fall in the sea, in the Indian Ocean, it, it didn't do that. It hung on and made it to shore. <laughs> it did. It scattered across a, a fairly wide space of Western Australia, the outback uh, Esperance around that area, about five hours from Perth. Indicate that uh, Skylab has impacted at uh, 42 degrees, 87 minutes south, 105 degrees, 0.97 minutes east, which puts it off the southwest corner of Australia. American space officials announcing that the world's most celebrated satellite has finally crashed. And a lot of people saw it come down and described it as being like this beautiful fireworks display. I think one pilot was flying and saw it through from the cockpit and said, it looked like Tinkerbell, I think he said. Yeah, that was a lovely was a description, but with some s- serious sonic booms as well, like massive that shook houses and made people think it was, a, it was an earthquake. Yeah. So Skylab had been up since... May of 1973, it was humanity's first home in outer space, or at least Airbnb, because they had uh, astronauts going to and from Skylab. Um, It was a space station and big enough that they could actually fly around inside it with jetpacks, which is pretty cool. Um, And the longest uh, period that a crew set up, there was 84 days, and that was a record Whoa. for space at the time. But they got so fed up with it, these three astronauts went on strike for a day. I'm not sure what sort of day it was, whether it was a, a Skylab day, an Earth day, because, you know, it was revolving around the Earth continually, so their days were different to ours. But they went on strike about over the conditions and schedule they were being forced to, uh, to follow. Dangerous game to play, really, isn't it, when you're up there going on strike and, you know, down in, at base they could just go, oh, yeah, we might just switch a few things off, you know, if you keep this up. True, but they also can't really get scab labour, can they? Martians. 
strike breakers <laughs> knocking on the door. All right, we'll take over from here. Little green men <laughs> on the picket lines. Did you see Skylab? I headed out. The family, we all we all piled into the station wagon and drove out to see if we could spot it one night. And uh, I, I think I ended up convincing myself I saw it when I didn't really. I did see it. I was playing under nine St. Pat's soccer practice at an oval in Duneside. I think it was a Wednesday night that we practiced. Uh, we needed to practice a lot more because we weren't very good. And about, I guess, 6.30, we all saw it. Sort of this, you know, blob of light just sort of trailing across the sky. Maximum excitement because Star Wars had just come out recently. Battlestar Galactica was on TV. And, uh, wow, this was a real-life spaceship. Were you scared that it was going to hit you? I don't remember any fear of the, along those sort of lines. I'm, I can't believe, looking at the newspaper clippings now, and there's, like, the image of what looks like, if you imagine, a fishnet stocking stretched across a map of the world and every single one of those crisscross lines is pretty much saying it could land anywhere along one of these lines it pretty much says it could land anywhere absolutely absolutely anywhere and you've got people saying stuff like you have as much chance of being hit by this as you have of being hit by a light plane and it's like yeah 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 sure but it's 75 odd tons it's got a lead safe on board which i, I loved as well i love the idea that up there in the satellite adding to the weight is a lead safe which was apparently used to keep the film safe from you can't being be too careful with burglars by rays that's right but that, that had shades to me of burke and wills taking their cast iron bathtub on the camels when they headed off on their uh, crazy expedition <laughs> but a lead safe was up there that had to land that had to land somewhere or yeah, burn some up of the pieces that came down did weigh two tons yep. so yeah I think they said it was a one in 152 chance of it hitting anyone. Mm-hmm. And I think individually, everyone on Earth at that point had a one in 600 million chance of being hit by I'll it. I'll take that. And there was a report that said that the only person who'd ever been hit by falling space matter was a woman in 1954 in the States who was suffered minor injuries when a meteorite crashed through her roof. I think it weighed about three kilograms. So it's not high on the, on the list of things that might kill you. One of the headlines I couldn't help but notice was don't panic, mm. which is a familiar phrase to fans of sci-fi and comedy combined because in this, in this same year, Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy came out with its famous phrase on the, on the guidebook itself, on the cover of the guidebook, were the words, don't panic. Douglas Adams' idea being that that was telling users of the book, calm down, it's not that complicated. But here it was, don't panic. And uh, I don't know, it, could, it was released in October... Do you think Douglas Adams saw that and went, yep, that's, that's good, I'll put that one in? Well, he was famous for pushing his deadlines to the absolute limit, so he might, he might have thrown that in at the very last minute, Skylab inspired. So the plan was, Skylab was in a fairly low orbit, and the plan was for the space shuttle to go up and to, to tow it, to lift it up into a higher orbit so its mission could continue. It was supposed to go on until 1983, but... Uh, uh, the problem was, of course, that the space shuttle program was delayed. So uh, when Skylab's orbit started to decay, it was sayonara. So all 77 tonnes of it was coming down. And um, NASA couldn't really say where or when it was going to hit. Um, so everyone was wondering, you know, where will it land? And the San Francisco examiner offered $10,000 for the first person to bring in a piece of Skylab within 72 hours of it coming down. And I think they offered this money at the time when it was kind of pretty certain it wasn't going to hit the US, so they never thought they'd have to pay out. 
but they didn't count on Aussie ingenuity. They did not count on Stan Thornton, the 17-year-old <laughs> from Esperance. Stan had a job lugging uh, beer on and off trucks in, in Esperance, WA. I know. How's that? If the, as if we don't have enough of a stereotype for the Americans as it is at this point that this kid turns up and, of course, he drives a beer truck. <laughs> That's right. But he, God bless him, he was 17 years old. He gathered up bits of blackened kind of Skylab pieces and from what a report I read, he hopped on a plane without a passport. I don't know how you could do that. Maybe you could do that 40 years ago. But flew to San Francisco, made it in time, and uh, the San Francisco examiner paid up. They gave him 10 grand US, which back then was a fairly substantial amount. It's a fairly substantial amount now. Oh, you, you cut straight to it. I was going to do the. Uh, I was going to scream spoiler alert because. Uh the, the build-up, this is one of those stories where you feel like, this should be a movie. Why has this not been made into a film? You've got the 17-year-old who's sitting at home with his mum who gets terrified on the night because there's basically 70 tonnes of red-hot shrapnel about to descend on her house. She's too scared to even check it out when it hits, and he goes up on the roof and finds 20 chunks of charred crap, basically, that he thinks might be Skylab. What else is it going to be, really? Well, true, yes. Well, he could, it could be a hoax. I mean, he could have been just you know, making it up. But he hopped races. He's had, he has 72 hours to get to San Francisco to claim this prize. And when he turns up, he's the only one who's made it there in time. So he's the only, or the, the only entrant in, in the prize. But he's got days to hang around while NASA confirms whether or not he actually has won it. He also has his mum, dad and girlfriend flying out. So they've paid big bucks and they may be told, sorry guys, but this, we can't confirm that this actually is Skylab. But in the meantime, he has a great time in San Fran. He plays softball. He meets the mayor. He has a few beers. He rides a cable car. And in the end, he's sitting there in the office. There's a great piece by the San Franciscan examiner saying... We've got this kid sitting here with his head in his hands. The paper hasn't arrived this morning. The paper that will announce whether or not it has been confirmed. And so there he is sitting there. The paper turns up. The boss walks into the office and hands Stan a copy. Stan didn't say a word. Not a word. He's not known for running at the mouth, but he just won $10,000 and he didn't have a thing to say. Instead, he sat and read what the newspaper said. Every single word. That, that was it. From there, he's, he's toast of the town. And back in Australia, it makes huge news. But sadly, I, I'd love to know what happened to Stan and, and what he did with the money. I have a feeling we might find out this week because uh, WA is planning some celebrations uh, commemorating the 40th anniversary of Skylab falling in their backyard. Uh, there's an ex exhibition in Esperance. Um, there's a new documentary film out. So I have a feeling we might hear from Stan because he'd only be 57 now and find out what happened. But I reckon you're right, that would make a good movie. What also was great was that, how's this? Fittingly, the Miss Universe pageant was about to be held in Perth. And of course, when it was held, they put a piece of Skylab up on stage and it supposedly upstaged most of the contestants. Oh, fantastic. In a bikini? <laughs> of course. Mm-hmm. There's ready-made quotes for the movie because apparently stands up. What he, one of the few things he did say when he won was, do you reckon Ray knows? And that was Ray Rose, his mate, that the newspaper insists on spelling mate in quotes, M-A-Y-T-E. 
because he's Australian, mate, mate, from Esperance. So Ray Rose was the guy who helped Stan get started in the race. And Stan, at the time when he finds out he's won, he calls Ray's home. Ray wasn't there. It's two in the morning. And even though the bars close at 11 p.m., this is the paper report, the American paper reporting this, Ray was out getting a beer. He left a message. <laughs> Just tell him it was from Skylab. That's all. Oh, and that was Stan. That's beautiful. Isn't that lovely? Something that I thought was worth noting on the great adventure of Stan Thornton while in America was a little, uh, a little piece that said not only did he stand to make $9,000 Australian for delivering pieces of Skylab to the San Francisco Examiner, he now, might... Now, hold on one second. So $10,000 US was only 9000 Australian dollars at the time? Yes, yes wow. it was. 9000 Aussie dollars was equivalent to $10,000. That, that is all. But not only did he stand to make that for delivering pieces of Skylab to the San Francisco Examiner... He might go home with 90,000 Australian, according to a Qantas Airlines spokesman. Why? Because apparently a furniture manufacturer in Philadelphia and others wanted to get in on the act and have offered big sums for him to make public appearances. So Stan was becoming quite the, uh, <laughs> quite the celebrity. <laughs> and if he took up any of these offers, and I couldn't find any evidence that he did or didn't, then uh, maybe he pocketed a bit more than his 10 US grand mm. thornton who drives a beer truck in a tiny town in wa would be the first real beverly hillbilly and strike it rich <laughs> i love the link this aussie youth who drives a beer truck finds a piece of space station so let's get him to advertise our furniture yes <laughs> not our beer so ten thousand american dollars back in 1979 was equal to nine thousand australian dollars it's interesting the way things change in terms of prices this was a big mm. week for price changes in Australia. Eggs, ciggies, petrol, everything was up this week. But it's interesting what they were rising from and to. I have strong memories of the uh, the banner sort of posters out the front of newsagents and it was beer, ciggies, up. <laughs> but it's funny how much they went up by and what they've gone up to now. The price of eggs, ciggies and petrol, I mean, God, the three staples, all went up in the same week. Yeah, yeah. Scary. And and people were panicking. <laughs> Stockpiling eggs. So the price of a dozen 60-gram eggs went up seven cents this week to $1.29. Yeah, but maybe they were getting bigger, Michael. Have you thought about that? Maybe the eggs were getting bigger. Maybe the eggs were getting bigger, but the price of a dozen 60-gram eggs today is only $5.50. So they've increased in price by about four times over 40 years, which is not too bad. But Siggy's, on the other hand... Cigarettes, a packet of 25 Winfields. A packet of Winfield 25s, as promoted by our friend Paul Hogan, were $1.06 and now thirty-two ninety-five. So they are newspapers and cigarettes, humongous price rises. Yeah, well, but newspapers are really bad for you. That's why they had to go up like that. <laughs> That's it. So this week in 1979, as an example of property price increases, you could buy a two-bedroom renovated sandstone terrace in the inner-city suburb of Balmain for $69,500. Now, I was looking at similar properties this week on the internet. Really? Feeling pretty flush, were you? Uh, yeah. $1.5 million? $1.3 to $1.5 million is what you pay for a similar property today. The thing is, if you had a time machine... You'd be better off going back and investing in packets of Winfield Blue 25s. 
Yeah, go the Winnie Blues. They yeah. they were king back then, and now if you had what you had a, a shipping container full, mm. if you'd spent a million dollars on Winnie Blue twenty fives back in the day and held onto them, I reckon they'd stay fresh in that plastic. I guess the demand isn't quite there. You'd have thirty three million dollars today. Mm. Sweet. Yeah, true. Putting on my economist's hat, which I don't do very often, <laughs> wouldn't you have been earning something like eight? thousand a year on a full-time wage back then and now your full-time wage average is about eighty thousand so it's gone up 10 times so for a lot of those things that makes sense mm-hmm. that they've gone up i don't think the average wage is eighty thousand but in, yeah anyway yeah so the average wage is in i did check it is is it it is wow mm. well i'm in i'm in mm-hmm. trouble <laughs> so am i it's average Okay, it's average. <laughs> there are a lot of people earning a hell of a lot more. <laughs> so if the average wage had increased at the same rate as the price of smokes, we'd all mm. now be earning about quarter of a million dollars a year. So it's cert- mm. I have a feeling smokes, yeah, have gone up for a different reason. Maybe. I'd say you're right. The thing is, if you went in the time machine and got all those packets of Winnie Blues... It would be troublesome because you'd have to open them, put on the plain paper packaging, put on the health warnings, and then reseal them before you flog them down the pub. So I'm saying if you do develop time travel, go with the property. It'd be much easier. Yeah, property would, yeah, you could have snapped up that Balmain sandstone mansion and you'd be sitting pretty now on your balcony with your Winnie Blues. The uh, search for Skylab pieces also uh, featured in the 1987 film Dogs in Space. If you haven't seen it, it stars the late Michael Hutchins as a drug-addled Melbourne rocker in the late 70s who's living in a similarly sort of whacked-out share house. And there's a scene where they're having this Skylab party and um, some of them set off to find, inverted commas, Skylab. I think from memory they end up cooking up bits of metal and trying to pass it off as Skylab. And they're hoping to collect a $1,000 reward because I wonder how much heroin that would buy. <laughs> <laughs> I reckon the characters from Dogs in Space who are kind of these bedraggled punks would have fit right into another Aussie classic film, Mad Max. Now, 40 years ago this week... Mad Max was making its way into cinemas and it was really confusing some of the critics who seemed to love it and also hate it at the same time. Mm. The, the moralising in some of the uh, film reviews of the time were actually were amazing. There was a line where someone saying, well, it's, it's sort of entertaining enough in its bleak and hollow way, but we're hoping that George Miller and his friends get eventually onto more serious messages. And he did with The Witches of Eastwick. <laughs> oh, absolutely. Happy feet. Here's, here's a review from The Age. Mad Max is a nasty piece of work. It is vicious, mean, uncouth, violent, and thoroughly distasteful. That's John Lapsley, but he did give it four stars. It seems that most of these reviewers were, they felt like they had to put a disclaimer in saying how awful it was, but they kind of begrudgingly really enjoyed it. Mm. Philip Adams in the bulletin said, that Mad Max was bound to be a favourite of rapists, sadists, and would-be Charles Manson's. He said it had all the emotional uplift of Mein Kampf. (laughs) (laughs) Stephen King, he called it a turkey. 
And that's pretty funny because in 1986, he made a film called Maximum Overdrive, which is actually about cars and trucks coming to life and killing people. And Maximum Overdrive, he actually directed it from one of his own right. stories. And he made it when he was in the depths of drug and alcohol addiction. And it is seriously one of the worst films of the 80s. So pot calling the kettle black there, Mr. King. Mm, yes. So did you see Mad Max at the time or soon after? I, I would have seen it not long after. And uh, it, it did blow me away. It, it sort of haunted my dreams for a while there. I did find it also was to me as a kid, as an Australian, it was amazing to see so many familiar landmarks and backdrops and places that were just familiar to me. There was, it was all around, a lot of it was shot around Port Melbourne, which was where I was growing up. Mm. That's when they unveil the uh, interceptor, isn't that, it? That is. He's in a coma. Look at him. Look at him. He loves it. He's just staring at the at the carby, like roaring at him. Mm. Or in the American version, he just loves it. He's in a coma. Look at him. Mm. Just for those who don't know, the when Mad Max was released in the United States in 1980, it was dubbed. Most of the voices, not all, but most of the voices were dubbed with these really cheeseball American accents. Mm. Pretty awesome. But, I mean, the thing was that... It didn't really matter that much because George Miller had said that he'd wanted this to be a silent film with sound, which is interesting because his most recent uh, instalment, Fury Road, he actually released a silent version of it. So these were, it was more about what was happening in terms of the action than the dialogue. I mean, you know, I think in the second film, I think Max says something like 11 lines and in Fury Road, Max, played this time played by Tom Hardy, had barely any. Yeah, he doesn't say a lot, Max. He's, no. he's definitely one of your more sort of taciturn heroes. Mm. But Miller obviously had a lot of fun with the with the dialogue, with the script, and the and some of the character names. I loved how you've got names like Kundalini, the guy who wants you know Kundalini wants his hand back, and that's what's like like the spiritual energy in yoga. <laughs> and there's Labatouche, Labatouche, the police commissioner, which is a town in Victoria where the boxing legend Lionel Rose came came from. Right. And then more familiar ones and more descriptive ones, Toe Cutter and Jim the Goose and oh, absolutely. the Knight Rider. Who can forget the Knight Rider? Say his name. And then there was Max himself, of course, with that amazing surname. Rokitansky. Rokitansky. Mm. Max Rokitansky. And even at the time, I remember thinking, did they sit around, come up with that name? It just doesn't sound like a real name. And it's kind of not a real name because it's it's a mishmash of Baron Carl von Rikitansky. Different spelling. George Miller being a doctor at the time so he was he was working in emergency to fund Mad Max and he named Max after this baron who was a bohemian physician which in itself I thought was pretty cool that he was a bohemian physician he was actually from Vienna so 1800s he was the guy who pretty much pioneered autopsies that were neat and clean if that is at all possible I thought you were going to say fun. Fun. I wouldn't go. I wouldn't go there. <laughs> but he was. He performed personally. Performed about thirty thousand autopsies in his life. Wow. And this is a little nod from Doctor Miller, the director, to good old Doctor Baron Karl von Rokitansky, who had this great way with internal organs. Interesting that he named the character whose specialty was dispatching people mm. after the person who was famous for slicing them up when they were dead 
Yes, yeah. Now, of course, it was a breakout role for Mel Gibson, American-born Mel Gibson. And he had, like, this is one of the zero-to-hero moments. I mean, he'd barely been in anything. He'd been in The Sullivans. He'd been in a film barely anyone saw called Summer City. But what I was really amazed to learn was he wasn't the first choice. There was an Irish-born actor named James Healy who, like Mel Gibson, was at NIDA, and he turned the role down, saying that there wasn't enough dialogue Wow. Uh, he, he went on to do supporting roles in Aussie Soaps. He played Joan Collins' fourth husband in Dynasty, and he was on Santa Barbara in the early 90s. And then in the mid-90s, did a show called Acapulco Heat. Mm. There's a movie review website that I was looking at, and it has a review of Mad Max Fury Road. It's user-generated, and it was written by a James Healy, who calls himself a writer and director. And James Healy, the actor who was going to be Mad Max, went on to be a writer and director. I'm not sure if it's the same person, but this review ends. It's a one-and-a-half-star review of Fury Road, and it ends by saying... F Mad Max, F George Miller, F Fury Road. You're thinking you might have got a a bit bitter and twisted. I'm not saying it's the same, James Healy. So James McCausland, who co-wrote Mad Max, he said he'd been inspired to write the script by what he'd seen during the 1973 oil crisis in Australia when Aussies were getting really aggro with each other while they were queuing up for dwindling amounts of petrol. Mm. And the timing in terms of the release of the movie was kind of grimly perfect because the world in July 1979 was in the middle of what was called the second oil shock. So President Jimmy Carter was hunkered down at Camp David trying to come up with some sort of energy policy. Mm. And uh, Vice President Walter Mondale was saying that the United States needed to have a program for alternative fuels as big and as searching as the Apollo space program had been. So, you know, that meant that America had to come up with synthetic fuels. It had to investigate solar, wind, wave, all of it to solve the energy crisis. And, uh, yeah, I'm glad that happened. Yeah, that, that went well. And meanwhile, you got the uh, film reviewers saying, oh, this is a slight movie with no particular message. When you think about it in those terms, that's, that's actually... It was bang on. It was hitting on something that was relevant then and possibly more so now. There was a quote that I read from James McCausland saying, George and I wrote the script based on the thesis that people would do almost anything to keep vehicles moving and the assumption that nations would not consider the huge costs of providing infrastructure for alternative energy until it was too late. Mm. I mean, that is the sort of amusing thing about the Mad Max series is that and it's, it is deliberate, although it seems kind of faintly silly, is that these guys spend all their time searching for petrol, but do so while driving huge gas-guzzling cars. It seems like a snake eating its own tail. Yep. You'd be better off just sitting on the beach, drinking beers and smoking cones. Well, they did a bit of that as well. They did indeed, yes. Yeah, shooting up mannequins on the beach and stuff like that. But you're right, it's a, it's a weird kind of metaphor for the way the world carries on today. Normally, being a little extra might be a bit much, but not when it comes to healthcare. That's why United Healthcare's Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, supplement your primary plan so you manage out-of-pocket costs. Learn more at uh1.com. Hey. So this week in 1979, it may surprise you to know, Mick, we didn't have the internet, we didn't have Netflix, we didn't even have podcasts. What? So you know how we're entertaining ourselves? Uh, smoking Winnie Blues, drinking beers, and watching Mad Max. And looking for Skylab. And looking to the sky. 
Mm. You couldn't even listen to FM radio back then because it still hadn't happened in Australia. So we're all on the AM dial. And I wonder, I was thinking about this, I wonder if that's, you know how you have this kind of vibe in your memory of the 70s and the sounds of it? Yes. <laughs> Does it, was the sound of the 70s AM radio, music on AM radio? You're right. There's, a, there's actually a bunch of musos who I think of, I, it took me a long time to actually start to appreciate because I'd spent way too many years hearing them in the car on a tinny AM radio. That's right. Guys like Neil Young doing oh, Heart of Gold, which is an absolute corker, but oh, I was sort of traumatised from those years. Because you're only hearing it on an AM, AM dial. Exactly, my delicate audio aesthetics. <laughs> <laughs> so this week, do you remember Donny Sutherland? I do. Music writer and presenter. This week in the paper, he said that we all needed to look out for the new musical group, The Knack, whose song My Sharona was burning up the charts in America and was soon to be released in Australia. And he said, quote, The way some are talking, they may even create a similar phenomenon to The Beatles, The Knack. Wow, yeah. Famously one of the, famously one of the biggest one-hit wonders in, in modern music history, sadly. But they did actually, that, that, that song, My Sharona, was the fastest gold debut single for Capitol Records since the Beatles' I Want to Hold Your Hand. And within a year, the band had crashed and burned and after a few more disappointing releases, were no more. Good song, though. Oh, massive song. That's that kind of song. You put it on late at night in a party and yep. it, it goes mm-hmm. off. Donnie, Donnie was right there, but yeah, in terms of picking long-term... He did not have the knack. He did not have the knack. Number one this week... Pop Music by M. Remember that one? Mm. Yes, I do. Yeah, talk about. Yeah. These are, these are some of the first songs I heard as a young pop fan and remember. Yeah, me too. It's the one-hit wonders that stayed with me at the time. I was kind of fascinated by these bands that would just, just a little bit like Skylab, come roaring in with this amazing song and then vanish, never to be heard of again. There was M, there was uh, was the, the Buggles around that time. with The Buggles, Video Killed the Radio yeah, Star, that's yeah. right. Uh, the Knack as well, of course, and, and all these other ones who are still getting airtime, they're still getting played, but it's just that one song. I always think about how it must be being one of those band members, having moved on with your life and then having to constantly hear these songs pop up on radio and being flashing back to this time you thought you were going to be a huge pop star. People like Racy with Lay Your Love On Me. Yeah, wow. Yeah, I I do remember Racy. Racy, of course, were far more than a one-hit wonder. This is true. What were their other songs? Uh, Some Girls. Some Girls Will, Some Girls Won't. Some Girls Need Mm -hmm. A Lot of Loving and Some Girls Don't. Mm. I I always think of them as precursors to Buck's Fizz, so they they have a lot to answer for. (laughs) But the number one album in Sydney this week was the very best of Leo Sayer, and that is All Killer, No Filler. Oh, of course. And there's Leo still going. Still going. With that hair. Yeah. What yeah, a madman. Yeah. He's got the knack. So this week in Sydney, cops were blowing up bombs made of beer cans. Yep. I saw this headline, beer can bombs exploded this week, and thought, oh, that's pretty weird. Why? And there's pictures of these cops blowing up these beer can bombs, which are actually, one of the photos shows one of these beer can bombs taking out a car. And the reason they were doing it 
was because it was the inquest into the death of this man who'd been shot at Sydney Airport with one of the, with two beer can bombs that he'd made. He'd taken this woman hostage with a knife in the terminal and managed to get through onto a plane with these beer can bombs that he was about to detonate when the police shot him dead. So at the counter, he'd grabbed this New Zealand nurse, this poor 23-year-old, and he had a knife at her throat. Mm-hmm and was threatening to kill her yeah and wanted to fly to moscow via rome and he wanted to meet the pope yeah have an audience with the pope and he wanted to meet the head of the communist party yeah and he also wanted a random 12 year old girl to go with him i have a feeling that this guy uh had a few mental issues sadly which the police were aware of because he'd already been in trouble for trying to build bombs somewhere at home and then the police actually advised the judge and said we we reckon he shouldn't be out and about and uh Mm. they were overruled and he was uh and and the judge said you can go and live with your brother and sister in uh in the burbs in melbourne domico speranza a a carpenter from fairfield yes so he was um quite troubled clearly mm. and it was very lucky i mean the the inquest where these bombs were detonated by the police uh determined they had a fuse which would burn down in about seven seconds and you know if one of these had gone off it really would have caused major damage and um yeah he, he went to light it with a match and as he did so the police shot him and he later died so it would have been a major terrorist event. Oh, clearly. It, it, yeah, massive news and pretty scary. Have times changed now that we, you couldn't bring beer cans on a, on a flight? Let's <laughs> yeah, say so. The thing was, they didn't go into massive lockdown afterwards, though. It seemed like it was dealt with as a one-off sort of situation. So, beer can bombs, not beer good. Beer can bombs. And yet, of course, we're just fulfilling our stereotype. It would have been reported overseas as, oh, that's what Australians do. More beer, more reasons to mention beer, use beer, and have fun with beer. Speaking of Australian stereotypes, this week a British doctor had written a feature article for the British Medical Journal about how to cure an ocker. Are you sure this was not a promotion for, you know, Barry McKenzie rides again or something? (laughs) Sounds like it. So this medico had written that an ocker, by which I guess he means the typical Australian man, An ocker is a large, florid man who lives in shorts and singlet, drinks enormous quantities of beer, and whose main exercise is to turn on the television to watch John Newcomb. So he said that... He didn't mention the thongs, he didn't mention the Winnie Blues. No, he didn't. Yeah, he wasn't being specific enough. Mm. But he's very specific about what he's watching on TV, which was John Newcomb, the tennis star. Yes. Right. So this, this British doctor said he had an, an Australian patient who had all of these qualities, but in addition, beat his wife. So he really needed to sort this guy out. And his method for curing the ochre was basically just to give him a really good talking to and a good swift kick up the backside. That was it. Yeah, right. I'm not liking this. It sounds racist to me. It does, but the Medical Journal of Australia took it upon themselves to reprint this doctor's advice for the benefit of Australian doctors. Great. And as you know, after that point, we no longer had ockers in Australia. Ockers died out, yeah. Ockers did that die That was out. it from then on. 
But we then did have Norm as the cartoon spokesperson for Life Beyond It, which was all about getting up off the couch and moving and being healthy. So maybe they did take notice of this guy. And Norm was a cheery bloke who treated his wife very well. Was he? Well, uh, from memory, yeah. Yes. Sometimes you can't tell, Mick. So we've all heard of May-December romances. This week we heard about a December December romance when a woman named Alice Fowler, 90, married 87-year-old Billy Cullen. And it's really quite sweet. This couple had both been residents in a aged care facility in Townsville, North Queensland. One night, Alice had gotten quite scared. She'd had a bad dream and she'd wandered out into the hall and she was kind of freaking out. And then all of a sudden, this man appeared next to her and said, darling, what's wrong? She told him that she was frightened and he said, I won't let anything happen to you and led her back to her room. And then over the following months, the couple who were both, you know, had both lost their partners many years before and had been quite sad, developed a friendship, which became a romance. And then they got married. He was 87 toy boy I guess and she was 90 <laughs> that is heartwarming and they went inside and they watched John Newcomb on the telly <laughs> they went inside and listened to my Sharona <laughs> put on some Starsky and Hutch and smoked some Winnie Blues so I like to think that this couple are still alive and still very happy and you know she's now celebrating her 130th and he's a, a sprightly 127 yeah I, I, i'm going to tell myself that's how it ends yeah and they just sit around talking about how everything's gone through the roof and finally i'm quite curious to know about the black hulk as he was called this bizarre creature from out emerald way in victoria a yowie i believe michael do tell well, the headline is, A Mountain's Monster Runs Loose. Scotland has its Loch Ness Monster, Nepal the Abominable Snowman, and now the mountain town of Emerald has the Black Hulk. So uh, this story is about a guy named Vic, inverted commas, he didn't want to give his real name, who was a plasterer, told his mate that he'd been out in the mountains when he'd been attacked by a two-legged black beast of tremendous strength. Uh, it was huge. He said it made a sound like an elephant running in galoshes. Great description. It is a great description. A pachyderm in gumboots. I didn't know we used galoshes. I didn't think we did either. Even in 79, we wouldn't have said galoshes. Yeah, I wouldn't have said so either, but this, this bloke clearly thought that was the way to describe it. Mm. Um, so the beast had been sighted first about three weeks earlier and had returned to a house leaving two giant footprints outside of a, this house's front window. So this bloke Vic said he went to a creek bed three weeks ago, heard some weird noises, felt something was following him. He made a run for it and this creature, this giant black hulk hairy man followed him he got into his Ford Fairlane and um, the beast put its hands on the car and was rocking it and trying to get at him, bouncing him up and down. He managed to get away and uh, knocked the beast to the ground when he put the car into reverse, which is a bit heavy, and uh, then started telling his mates all about it and they sort of told the newspapers, uh, but he didn't come forward officially. Vic didn't want to be identified. Yes, but uh, experts supposedly investigated and they thought that all of this the prince and the attack were actually conservationists trying to scare off people who used to steal tree ferns from the area right so it's kind of like a scooby-doo plot it, is, it really is. dress up like a 
dress up like a yowie, which is what it was later said to be, lay some footprints around in order to scare off the tree fern stealers. But I would have thought that would have only served to actually draw attention to the area. Yeah, you would think so. It doesn't quite... There's a few holes in this plot, if if it was going to be one of those plots. Nevertheless... This has become part of Yowie law, and if you mm. Google Emerald and Yowie, you'll see multiple retellings of this story with the Emerald Black Hulk being described as the mythical indigenous creature, the Yowie, which has been spotted in Australia, supposedly, over the past 150 years or so in various locations. Fantastic. And, of course, the Hulk was pretty big back then, the Bill Bixby Hulk of... yeah. US TV fame, but he was green. This one was black. We didn't find out whether this Yowie had like these little tiny pair of torn shorts on. No, but he should have been green, really, if he was a tree fern kind of um, guardian. Yes. Hmm. I reckon Vic might have been having a few too many beer bombs. Yeah. (laughs) All right, that's all the time we have this week. Join us next week when we go back, way back, to the third week of July, 1878. Until then, remember this enigmatic final quote from Mad Max Fury Road, which comes from a character called The First History Man, and he asks, where must we go, we who wander this wasteland, in search of our better selves? Tired of ads barging into your favourite news podcasts? Good news. Ad-free listening is available on Amazon Music for all the music plus top podcasts included with your Prime membership. Stay up to date on everything newsworthy by downloading the Amazon Music app for free or go to amazon.com slash news ad free. That's amazon.com slash news ad free to catch up on the latest episodes without the ads.